This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeedTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NeedTech. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Jill Morgan. I'm a nurse here at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, and part of NeedTech. And as some of you may know, I am an enthusiastic supporter of PPE and research and biocontainment and all things special pathogens. For those of you not yet familiar with NeedTech, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the U.S. with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. On today's episode, I am thrilled to have some very brilliant guests who are going to share with us just what it's like to be involved in research of unusual speed and epic importance, like when there's a pandemic going on, crushing literally our healthcare systems. So today we have five guests. I'm going to start in alphabetical order with Krista Argenshona, who is the manager of special pathogens at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane. Welcome, Krista. Hi, Jill. I'm happy to be here today. And I have Barry Clark. He is the research educator at Emory University Hospital, right down the hall from me here in Atlanta. Hi, Jill. It's good to be here. I have Jade Flynn, who's the biocontainment unit director at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Happy to be here, Jill. Always happy to chat with friends. Excellent. I have Jessica Giesecke, who is the research nurse in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, certainly, Michael, I have Michael Willick, who's the nurse program manager of biocontainment care unit at UTMB, or the University of Texas Medical Branch in Texas. Thank you, Jill. Glad to be here. All right. So we are calling this episode Warp Speed Research. But before we get into that, let's just kind of take a few steps back and talk about regular research. So before we get into the really speedy parts, let's talk about kind of how research normally progresses, what the timeframes are, and, and kind of how things move through that process. So Jessica, I'm going to go to you first, and then we'll let Barry jump in. So yeah, research, you know, I think when people think of research, it's this traditional treatment, cancer treatment, and different types of research that have these long periods where you, you have time to get your site ready to go you get onboarded, you start enrolling patients. These are like six months to a year long process, making it a lot of time for planning and for working through challenges and making it happen in a consistent manner. Thanks. And Barry, from your experience, because I know you work here in clinical research, when you think about implementing a new study, and I know you've been working on several here, what kind of steps do you have to go through and, and how long is that timeline from your perspective? Yeah, I agree with everything that Jessica has said, Jill. The timeline can be a little bit different. Sometimes I, I tell people the quickest I've ever seen one go up that was not an emergent one was a couple of months. But most of the time, I tell people to get a study completely off the ground and through the regulatory process and through the approval process through our IRB and 
Office of Clinical Research, usually takes anywhere from six months to a year, and I've seen it take longer. It's just based on what the study is about, what the needs are of the study, and any complications that might come up in regards to consents. Consents take a long time to get approved, because oftentimes sites have certain wording they want to put in their own consent in regards to issues, liability, whatever you want to call it. So I always tell people getting a study up and running somewhere between six months to a year. Okay, so that can be a long time and certainly doesn't seem like it would be a reasonable way to respond to an emergency. So Jade, tell me a little bit about how we got to warp speed. Like how do we go from what sounds a little like maybe turtle speed into this supersonic kind of thing? I think what Marija mentioned that is hearing that a protocol went from the time that it was approved to two months, that is very, very rare. And in this instance, especially with COVID, everything was accelerated. And I think a lot of these protocols got off the ground within a month. And I think that acceleration of being able to take something that we think is going to be helpful and give us a bit more information and knowledge about what we can try in terms of therapeutics or vaccines, we took that and then ran with it. And all of these things that were occurring that were not associated with COVID also were on pause. So we had all these folks that were working in research now coming together and having a single pathogen or a single disease process that we were all funneling our efforts toward. In that aspect, we had the people to do it. It's now we had one sole focus. Just like everything else in the world stops, all the other research that was ongoing was paused so that we can focus on one thing together. You mentioned something, and, and Barry mentioned it as well, of this idea of approvals, right? So there are a bunch of things that have to be approved and orders that these things have to be done in. So I want to kind of level set some terms here so we're, we're all speaking the same language. And certainly for me, I was a latecomer to clinical research, and this is something that I'd sort of always heard people talking about, but I didn't really understand. So I'm going to start with Michael asking you about the term EUA. So I know that there are a lot of organizations and, and agencies that have to approve things. So tell me a little bit more about what an EUA is. Absolutely. An EUA is an emergency use authorization. When time is of the essence, the FDA can issue an EUA for the use of a pharmaceutical or medical device before it has been fully vetted or approved for use. We saw this happen during the COVID pandemic where so many people were dying and we had no vaccines or specific medications to treat patients. The FDA issued an emergency use authorization for vaccines, monoclonal antibody infusions, and other countermeasures before they were completed before they completed all phases of their research studies. Okay. And I'm going to jump then to Jade thinking about those phases. So I know that there was a lot of concern during COVID about the speed of research, right? On the one hand, everybody wants things quickly. And on the other hand, there's a worry that we're not going to have things done in the correct way because we're speeding things up. So help fill us in on what the phases are. And then we're going to go backwards a little bit to talk about how you go through those from all the IRBs and OCRs and all the other vegetable soup of, of research. Sure. So thinking about taking a product, a therapeutic, whether that's a vaccine or a, a treatment, so we have preclinical phase, which when looking at, I think of like people in like test tubes and they're just like in their lab and they're just trying to figure out what works at that basic bench science level. 
And then they create a product and they think, okay, this might be helpful for X disease process. And now we need to see, is it safe to actually give to humans if they have this disease process? So phase one really looks at safety. Phase two looks at more dosing. Is it effective? Does it run for treating or preventing this disease process? And then the third phase really looks at, okay, is it better than what we have available to us? And then with COVID, we had nothing else available to us. It was more, is it better than just the supportive care that we're able to provide? And I think being able to take the safety, the efficacy, and then is it working better than what we have? And looking at that all at the same time, we had to make sure that we had good representation across the board of those three important factors in our data collection. So is it safe to use? Is it effective? Is it better than what we have? And so what we did with these products, we said, okay, here's the antiviral. Does it work with this virus that we have? Is it safe? Is it effective? Is it better than what we have? So looking at them all at the same time. And so I think with warp speed, using those clinical trials and having to look at those three factors all at the same time takes a lot of work and also takes a lot of effort to make sure that we're doing it correctly and safely for those who were enrolling into these clinical trials. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you're not just talking necessarily about a new drug, but maybe an existing drug, is it effective for this new pathogen or this new condition? And and making sure that we've looked at that in a structured research responsible way where you don't just have people sort of willy-nilly trying things that Uncle George heard that maybe would work if, yeah. Okay, so I know there's some other acronyms that we probably are going to have come up today that I want to briefly define. So you may hear people talk about an IND or an investigational new drug. You may hear people talk about an IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board. So Institutional Review Boards, OCRs, the Office of Clinical Research, these are things that stand up within facilities or universities sometimes that look at all these bits and pieces and make sure that they want to be involved in this, right? So I heard somebody mention the FDA earlier. Michael mentioned the FDA and and their approval process. Can one of y'all just fill me in on within your own facility, what's the IRB or the OCR? What are they looking for and who do they protect? Yes. The role of the IRB is really to ensure that whatever study protocol we have coming through is safe and is not going to adversely affect the people that we are trying to include in these research studies. So it's really protecting the participants and the community because we don't want to do something that is not going to be beneficial or dangerous to folks. So they're the ones that are kind of an objective third party that have some knowledge of the clinical background, the pharmacology background, the science background to say, let's look at this protocol and make sure that it's safe and that it's inclusive, and that we're not really biasing the information and data that we're collecting to make inconclusive or inaccurate conclusions. Oh, I like that a lot. And I'm going to lead that right into Jessica. I wanted to ask you about expanded access programs. So so tell me a little bit, Jade just mentioned inclusivity, and I know we won't have time to go into all of that today, but I'd like to just touch on that briefly before we go into a little bit more about the roles of who does what in research. Yeah. So expanded access programs, I think, are more for that singular situation. So when you have somebody who 
needs treatment and there's no medication that's FDA approved available for it, but there's a medication similar that's been used to other types of illnesses or diseases that may be beneficial, you can utilize with a lot of regulatory oversight an expanded access program, also known as compassionate use. So these are kind of more of these singular situations that we may find utilizing more in a trial later on. Excellent. So that's a good sort of background leading into this next piece we want to talk about. I know each of you had roles within your facility, and I want to get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about who all typically is involved in research. You know, whether we kind of name off some typical roles like a research coordinator, what a PI is, who all needs to be involved and who is typically involved in these research things. So I'd love to start with Michael and then kind of go around. And Krista, I want to end up with you because I know that in many cases, in a crunch situation, when we are operating at warp speed, sometimes you end up being both the ship's captain and you're rowing the boat. So I, I want to kind of get back to that. But Michael, let's talk about the roles you kind of see being most important in clinical research and, and what those are. When you're coming up with new ideas for a medical device or a new drug for research, that typically starts with a sponsor. The sponsor then secures a primary or principal investigator to conduct a research study on their new device or drug. There are also times when the sponsor and the principal investigator can be the same person. From this point forward, though, there is a multitude of people who become involved, research nurses, pharmacists, study coordinators, lab personnel, and many others. It is also important to keep in mind, regardless of how many others become involved in a research study, the primary investigator is ultimately responsible for the entire study and responsible for everything that everybody else does. All right. And Jessica, how does that, do you find that there's any variety, in, for instance, in your facility? And I know you do a lot of research there at, at UTMB in Texas. Do you have those same roles that Michael talked about? Are there other people that get involved in, in your facility? We have PIs and they can be real experienced physicians who have done many trials. We can have junior PI, you know, ones that are less experienced and have guidance. There's sub-investigators that they like to say. So those are other physicians or uh, advanced practice providers. There's a lot of different roles that are involved. And not only in the physician aspect, but in the regulatory side. But yeah, there's a lot of different roles. And then there's the coordinators. And they can be of many different experiences and backgrounds. And Okay, excellent. And then who haven't we named, Jade and Barry, that you guys think are important to, to make sure that you've included or are aware of when it comes to research? When you think about any research that happens, Jill, the, the PIs are always kind of the lead person coordinators are always the ones who kind of manage, like you say, they do lots of parts of the study. But you also have, you have usually there's always a regulatory person who is involved. If, if there's regulatory stuff, the FDA is involved. They have specific things they have to have. You, you have lab personnel who are going to help with that study also. Uh, in regards to once a medication is given, we're usually looking at how it is impacting the body in regards to its function. And kind of like what Michael said, then there's always an investigational pharmacist that's going to be involved. It doesn't go through regular pharmacy. It goes through a special pharmacy. 
all the way down to the data analyst who usually help us with keeping the data and how it's processed. And then down to the last group of people who are the most important are the nurses who are administering it. We, like, we have a special unit here where there are specially designed nurses or specially taught nurses who do research who are going to be given this medication and usually they understand how to follow research protocols. Excellent. And now I want to I want to let Jade and Krista sort of take this conversation in the direction of warp speed, because Barry ended that really talking about the nurses and the daily work that nurses do. And I know that that was a bit different during warp speed. So, Jade, I want to start with you and just let you introduce that topic. And then I want to circle back to Krista, because while many of us are representing university based healthcare systems, Krista is from Sacred Heart in Spokane, which is a large, large healthcare system that is not university-based and may not have people who are used to doing, like, may not have research physicians on board. So fill us in, Jade. I think the challenge, especially with COVID, is that there were so many folks that we could enroll and that were part of the study. And just the volume of participants that we were following through, it couldn't be one nurse going around and giving study drug to every single participant. So I think what had to happen is that we needed to engage that frontline clinical bedside nurse to say, hey, your, your patient is enrolled in this study. Let me tell you something about it. Let me tell you who you need to call if you see X, Y, Z happen. And I think the other part is that, to, to what you've alluded to, is that all of these functions typically are within separate roles. Now we've had folks that are taking on multiple hats. And I think Krista has the experience of having multiple hats within a study protocol. Yes. Thank you, Jade. That is very true. And when I think back to us onboarding the clinical trial we were involved in during COVID, I remember walking down the hallway of one of our respiratory floors and saying to our research team, is it always like this with a research protocol? And they said, it's never like this. And I was like, oh, okay, good. That makes me feel a little bit better. I believe that the aspect of COVID, as you just alluded to, Jade, the very large volume of patients all of a sudden. And then for us, having nurses not used to collecting research labs that were different from clinical labs or having a mechanism in place in our electronic health record for them to easily do that. It fell to me going to multiple units all over the hospital to collect what I now know was a very robust research specimen collection schedule for all of our patients. And, you know, on hindsight, what I really recognize now was the value of collaboration in creating processes where we could communicate to all of the different roles involved in this, the pharmacist, the lab team, the research coordinators, the, the PI, and then the bedside nurse, of course, who were ended up administering the drug. And then we finally got to the point where we could We'd done enough education in a just-in-time fashion to solicit their help in collecting the specimens, but it took us a while to get there. I think that's so interesting, Krista, because it sounds like we were talking about and sort of sketching out what a normal research process looks like, which is very orderly, which is based on very predictable kind of steps that 
doesn't move very fast normally. And now we're throwing this pandemic at it. And that meant that you guys specifically were trying to safely make this as expeditious as possible. It's not that there weren't phase one trials, as Jade said, right? It's just that you might be doing several at once. You might be lowering the number of people that you would like to enroll in this and so that you could get through this in an efficient manner. So that's just a lot of work to go from what's a slow orderly process to one that can be implemented super fast. So Jade, I know that you and I had some conversations way back about the importance of how do we make this happen? How do we put things in place so that this isn't so hard moving forward? I think that what research is, it's very regimented, right? You have step one that leads to step two and that leads to step three. And then for those of us that also know what happens at the bedside, one, two, three might happen all at the same time. And it might happen not within like a time frame, but instantaneously. So if you were to take research and to take the clinical side, it would have organized chaos in a sense, because you have two worlds that are meeting together. And essentially what happened is that nurses became that bridge, right? They understood what happens at the bedside, but they understood the need for organization and for something that is regimented so that when the data comes out on the other side, it shows what's accurate and what is going to support the need for maybe a medication to come through the FDA and be approved. So I think for something like this, that special pathogens has this innate urgency because it affects people so rapidly and it affects many people over a short amount of time. I think the the challenge is that we need to have a process that is greased well, where we have things in place so that when the next thing comes, we have a protocol to start right away. So we're not having to build those steps in the mode, which happened during the pandemic. Yeah. When you were talking, I was thinking about, for instance, my, my background before coming to Emory was in ER medicine. And I think about like traumas and in trauma, everything has to happen really fast. And yet everything in trauma is very protocolized. Everything's got a step. Everybody knows their role. So there's no stepping over each other. And, and it just, you know, you practice these things so that it can run smoothly in a crisis. And I guess I'm interested in how we got, how you guys really got an awful lot of people on the ground at your facilities up to speed and able to participate in research who hadn't been a Barry before, right? Who hadn't been a research nurse before? Like, how do you go from zero to 60 in that case and bring people on board? And it feels like to me, you guys were taking, I guess I think about like trying to jump into a running running river or something like that. There was so much moving that you almost have to get up to speed before you can jump in. And I think about how hard it is to implement these things in an inpatient setting. And I'm very sympathetic, of course, to the nurse at the bedside standpoint, because that was my life for so long in ICU. And I can imagine if Jade or Chris or Jessica had come to me and said, hey, we know you're busy today, but this person's on a study. And so we need for you to give this medication at noon and draw these this lab uh, at one o'clock and at two o'clock, I'd be like, well, I can't even tell you what my answer would be because I'm an ICU nurse and I would probably use some foul terms. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah, same here. <laughs> so, yeah, Jessica, go ahead and kind of tell me what that looked like for you. 
Sure. Yeah. And I actually entered into research like at very beginning of the pandemic, you know, at the University of Minnesota here, we, so we had a system we provide, we have C patients in and looking at, we looked back at it, like we received the protocol for ACT, which is one of the trials that was a big one in the you know, remdesivir and the different treatment options. We see done this March 5th, which we know everything kind of came to a halt at that time in 2020. And we enrolled our first patient March 25th. And so in that 20 days, everything happened, not only like the regulatory, the research side of it, but the training, the bedside nurses. We had, you know, we came in, you know, as research staff, there's people, they didn't have any work anymore. So it became this whole like collaborative team that just, hey, you work in cardiology, come work with us in this group. Hey, you know, and it had the research background, but didn't have they had the basics of research so that they could, we could make it eat work. And it became like a well, you know, well machine after you know, a long period of time. But, you know, you came to the bedside and as a bedside nurse, originally, I always, I always try to approach it as what can I do to make it less work for you as the bedside nurse when I want to implement research? So we try to be as pragmatic as possible, like, okay, we're going to give you the basics, the training. We're going to ask you to do these labs. We'll be there to support you if we can. You know, we weren't even allowed in the hospitals in some of these places or up onto these units. And you're asking all these additional asks to the nurses who are already stretched way too thin and are don't know what's going on either. Uh, but we kind of found as, as you went on, the nurses actually started to wanting to be interested, like, hey, maybe this patient's eligible for this study. Those bedside nurses, you know, they were invested because they, we kind of all were like, looking for options because they're seeing these patients in front of them doing so poorly because there's nothing else we can do offer. And so right. it, it kind of grew from us being a burden to them, to them trying to, you know, as a bedside nurse being them as to the bedside nurse providing, you know, some even like eligible asking if patients could be eligible and, and seeking out research. Yeah. I think that's such a nice idea that, that, I mean, a nice outcome out of some really dark times with this idea that we did treat patients and feel like we were watching people die in front of us and there was so little we could do. And and that's right. just devastating. I mean, nobody goes into healthcare with the idea that we're just going to watch people die helplessly. Um, Without their so, family either. That yes, was the big, right. hardest part was that you telling families, no, you can't come in. Right. But yet, you know. Yeah. yeah. Very, very hard. So yeah, I'm glad there was some some positive coming out of that. And I think the idea of other nurses be wanting to be involved in research is also always a plus. Dave, mm -hmm. tell me about Hopkins, because I know you guys ended up en enrolling a tremendous number of folks in some of these trials. Yeah. So I think from my perspective, like I came into research just because I was part of our biocontainment here, because so much started from that special pathogens preparedness realm. And then it needed to become everybody needs to be part of special pathogens. So there was only so much I could control within the four walls of our biodynamic unit. And then I became almost like this ambassador of like, this is how we behave and practice in special pathogens. Let's bring this to you and become that almost like mensch, right? That mm -hmm. I'm going to guide you through all these different aspects of research, special pathogens, infection control, and all that. And so I think being able to have that perspective and share that with everyone was really helpful. But for special pathogens research, I think it's kind of hard when it's the volume of patients that we we experience. And I think that's probably what was probably most intimidating is that you don't have a subset of like 10 patients that you're looking after. You have almost hundreds of patients that could be eligible and to just go through every single one of them and say, would they benefit from it? Could they not? So 
having to almost be on because you never know when these patients are going to get admitted. Patients are coming in 24-7. Thank you for that. So Krista, I know you end up being involved in an awful lot of things in Spokane. So how did you get buy-in from people that weren't research nurses? And, and how do you bridge the knowledge gap that Jade was just talking about, right? You have people who haven't done this before, or maybe they're in a different role because of the other situation that was going on in healthcare at the time. That's a powerful amount of just-in-time training to me. It is. And to be quite honest, Jill, at the beginning, there wasn't even time to do just-in-time training, which is why I think so many of us took on the number of roles that we did to make it happen. And to your point earlier, you know, healthcare workers are amazing humans. They go into healthcare to help people. And I think that was the motivating factor is why so many people were able to come to the tables is everybody wanted to do anything they could to help people survive this virus. And I think that's why there was buy-in from people to say, okay, can you teach me what I need to know in order to feel like I can safely intervene or take on an additional role that I haven't done in the past to help these patients? And so I think in the beginning, that's the reason I wore so many hats or the reason I went to collect all the specimens. We couldn't send specimens from the ACT trial to our main lab because we onboarded the trial so quickly. The lab that was approved in the protocol for us was our special pathogens lab. And so if those specimens would have gone to the main lab, nobody would have known where they were. So we had to have one of us physically there to take them down to the lab and, and do all the processing. So it was not having those mechanisms in place that I think made it that much more challenging. And then once we were able to take a breath and people understood what situation we were in, there was the opportunity to create one-page sheets. You guys know how involved and long the protocols mm -hmm. are. But our research team was able to condense down what did the nurse at the bedside need to know to help them feel confident and safe to administer this investigational drug. So a one-page sheet and then a lot of rounding and just coming up side to side, showing up on the unit at one o'clock when the dose was due to touch base with the nurse to say, do you have questions? Have you reviewed this? Do you feel comfortable going in and giving this medication? So it was just a lot of elbow-to-elbow -elbow education and then also educating the providers to have a better understanding of the research study, to know the inclusion criteria, and then how and who do they contact to say, hey, I think I have somebody that would be this would be good for or meets these criteria and let's get them enrolled. And so really now we learned so much, but that's really taking the lessons that we learned through that to feed into developing more established processes has been really valuable. Yeah, I love that. First of all, uh, I, I don't want to lose one thing that you mentioned that I just love, which is when there is no time for just-in-time training, you have to rely on the power of nurses. To me, that's, that's exactly what makes us special is that really you throw something at us 
and we will find a way to make it work. Now, that's not ideal, right? I mean, we'd like to all have these processes in place, but when, I guess the Southern phrase would be, you know, where the rubber meets the road, right? Like, like when these things just have to happen, you've got to have the right people in place that, that can make that and can do the kinds of tasks that, that uh, Krista was just talking about. And, and I'm not even sure Barry knows this, but it, it was Barry's role here at Emory actually came out of a conversation Jade and I had about the difficulty of implementing research and the importance of having a liaison, right? Somebody that can help the bedside nurses understand what they need to do. I, I love this idea of, you know, like creating tools. I know that Barry's works with some of our research nurses who, like, they take a research protocol and they are so good at, at breaking it apart and creating their own daily order sets and their daily notes so they know exactly what has to happen when. And they're really making sort of a Cliff's Notes version or, you know, the, the checklist version of a very big protocol. And that's something that we, we just realized we were going to have to have. And we were lucky enough to have Barry be able to step into that role here, uh, who's been doing research for a long time, but now be able to be a research nurse educator. So that can be part of his, his goal overall. Michael, can I tag you to talk about what that looked like for y'all? Absolutely. My research situation was a little bit different than others on this panel in that I was in an outpatient setting and was working with vaccine and monoclonal infusion research. So we're not talking about patients that were in hospitals. Our research subjects were walking and still active. Vaccine research subjects had to be healthy and could not have had COVID. Our monoclonal infusion subjects also had to have a new onset and first time with COVID. What we also experienced was where vaccine studies before COVID, we would typically have, what, 10, 20 subjects in a vaccine study. During warp speed, we had hundreds of people in our COVID vaccine studies. We actually had to turn some people away. To manage this larger number of research subjects, we had to hire more nurses and also brought in other people to manage the phones, do some record keeping, process laboratory samples, and complete other clerical duties. Research nurses often perform these other duties, but we were now able to devote more time to our research subjects with this help. I know I ended up giving over 800 study vaccinations along with all my other nursing duties. We could talk about this stuff for a long time. <laughs> And what I, what I would like to do is talk about a few things that I think we want to put on our plate for maybe the next time we get together. First of all, I know that we had touched on Michael's role really in the outpatient setting and vaccine research and vaccine trials, which is fascinating. And I know that many of us had experiences with that during COVID of, of manning booths in a parking lot in the cold to do vaccines, to do all kinds of things during COVID. But also, I know you guys developed some real tricks of the trade. So thinking about giving people some ideas so that when this happens again, and it will, every facility doesn't have to come up with a new way of doing something like figuring out how you can get a patient to sign a consent who's in isolation and nobody wants to touch the paper once it comes out of the room. And figuring out, you know, like just some of those details that 
that if we can make that easier for people moving forward, if we can make this whole process less intimidating, then whether it's another pandemic influenza type thing, whether we have a larger outbreak of, of knock on wood, let's hope not a viral hemorrhagic fever, any of this kind of special pathogens, things that we sort of, of have as our, our own specialty, I'd really like to think that we're going to we could help people be in a better position to roll out the necessary research to get these things from an idea phase into a phase one, two, and three, and into something that, that puts, whether it's a treatment or a test or a, a therapeutic, into the hands of the people that need it. So I would like to give you guys the chance to, to sort of make a last statement about this episode and then talk about the other things we want to talk about for the next podcast. I can kind of take a stab at that, Jill, just to kind of say, like, kind of bookend, you know, all the things and challenges that we had during COVID and during all the other special pathogens responses um, to include research. There were things that came out of it that did prepare us for the next go around. So how are we taking what we, we learned and not just having lessons learned, lessons not just acknowledged but really lessons learned and take something out of it so we have mentioned communication how are we communicating with patients uh when they are in isolation how are we getting um consent from them how are we ensuring that everybody knows that research can occur in these types of settings i think for for all of us on on this on this podcast it's now we're we're one step forward and we need to continue moving forward with, with that. So I think for, for us, I think the biggest thing that came out of it was how to involve those who could be enrolled in, in, in research, understand consent. What does consent look like in, in these types of settings? I think it's important that we don't say, phew, glad that's over and then move on. But to Jade's point, what did we learn? And then how do we take those lessons to facilitate better processes in place. And I think knowing who all the players are is important. And then continuing to the value of even just sitting down for an hour together with all those key players, research, lab, pharmacy, and clinical personnel that are at the bedside to do it just a one-hour tabletop discussion about what types of process, how would we address the next emerging special pathogen process? What processes can we have in place now that are already there to help us onboard something quickly in the future? Because to your point, Jill, we are going to see something else. I think we're all confident of that based on our experiences. Yep. Hey, Michael, what do you think? What would you like to end with today? Just because I was uniquely in the in the outpatient setting, and again, the number of, of subjects that, that we were dealing with, this all happens at once. We've talked about it, and it's a lot of times we're not prepared for it. One of the things that we made sure we did was on a weekly basis, we had a huddle. This is what happened. This is what we need to do. This is what we can change. This is what we need to adjust to. And then we looked at it proactively instead of reactively. And I think that really helped us in getting uh, the number of patients through our test subjects through. The other thing, I'm old school, but one of the things I was really introduced to, and I am now believe in it, 
is a lot of the uh, consenting, well, with the vaccines anyway, we did with iPads and it was done electronically. The advantage to that is if you're worried about the infection control, you don't have the papers. It's done all on the iPad and that's easier to decontaminate. It's also easier to keep as far as actual paper records, keeping track of everything. The other nice thing to think about on the iPad is as the patient or the test subject is consenting, they have to check off on there. I understand this. It's dated and timed. They go through the next section. They check off on it. It's dated. It's timed. So when your consent is done, you have actually a better consent that's been signed and understood and you have better documentation of it. So I, I think that was that's big is, is moving towards an electronic consent. Yeah, I love the I love the two things you sort of the the big concepts you mentioned is one is old school, which is communication, right? It's huddles, it's making sure everybody's on the right page and and making sure that you are understanding the lessons actually to be learned, as Jade said, not just we're gonna nod at that and go on. And then the other one is leveraging technology, right? So so what can I do? What do I have that can make this easier? Jessica, tell me about how things were for you in Minnesota. Yeah, I think, you know, you learn a lot of things from going through this experience. One of the things I, I think that I found very humbling and, you know, encouraging is the amount of people who came to the table when when the need arose. And not only research background, but individuals who may not have had any research experience and brought this together and, and were willing to help and stayed along the whole process too, not just, you know, helped until it was settled down or until the, you know, things were starting to go back to normal, there was still that involvement and that investment in research and COVID and the output that we had of these medications and these treatment options and the availability of vaccines and testing options allowed us to really show proof to the teamwork and that when everyone is invested in that same effort, what output you can get from it. And we still use a lot of that today, the technology and the different advances to research, not only in the emergent situation in pandemics. Yep. The proof really is in the pudding. I mean, just, just mm -hmm. getting it through the other side and realizing that we do have effective treatments. We do have effective vaccines. We do have tests you can buy at the drugstore. And, and all of that was because of, of the good work of people like y'all. Barry, I know that you sort of came into uh, some of this research after COVID. And to you now, when you think about kind of moving forward, Tell me what, where you think we are here at Emory and what we've got in place versus what we might need in place. Well, I think probably, Joe, the most important thing that, that came out of this and, and even moving forward, especially in emergent type situations, is having a institution and staff who can do two things. They can be very nimble and they can pivot easily into new things because even if you think about what it was like at the beginning when we couldn't decide who was going to wear a mask, who wasn't going to wear a mask, and when. It's almost like the same thing with this. We, we had nurses coming to us on the unit saying, we're used to getting these, these protocols and these order sheets, and we're showing up with this medication for MPOX that we weren't aware of. And being able to be nimble and pivot quickly was probably the most impactful thing that I think helped then and will help in the future. Uh, regards from a nursing point of view or a staffing point of view. Yeah. I mean, I like that in all of my life. I want everyone around me to be sort of nimble and able to respond to situations. 
whether that's, you know, my poor husband having to respond to my changing desires to, to go someplace or buy something. But I think that it is one of those things you think that's just a really useful skill to have in healthcare is the ability to kind of pivot, as you said. Jade, I'm going to go back to you for our final wrap up here. So I think coming out of the special pathogens research response, research then became part of the mainstream because now everybody knew that research was happening. I think with more attention and more limelight and having research in the zeitgeist, more funding comes with that, right? If we have more attention that's given to this, we have more more leverage to actually say, this should be funded, this should be important and as a priority. So I think being able to have these examples of how we responded during COVID, how we responded during MPOX, how we're responding during all these other outbreaks that are occurring concurrently sometimes, now we say that this is important and there should be funding that comes with it. And more attention to the research that we can nimbly respond to this and make sure that it doesn't become an outbreak, that it, it truly is contained. I love that. And I love the idea that if you're somebody listening who works in healthcare who hasn't been involved in research at your facility, see what's being done. Look around you and see, because there might be some ways that you can be involved um, and, and that you might be really interested in this aspect of healthcare, which for a lot of us really wasn't a part of our normal lives up till maybe a few years ago. And so I think that it is sort of a very interesting change of pace from maybe regular bedside care into research. And it does change sort of your daily work, but the skill set's the same. It's right. It's, it's problem solving and it's being nimble and it's communicating and it's uh, might be drawing labs, it might be giving medication, but it's also just participating in, in sort of a larger team. Because certainly what I've heard today is the importance of all these roles and people working together for what is, I think, no exaggeration, the greater good. You guys did yeoman's work at your facilities, and we have many thousands of people who are alive today because of it. They got the treatment they needed. They got the best care that they could have gotten. They were able to get the medications that were brand new. And in the case of a new pathogen, otherwise we had very, very little to offer these folks. And it was a scary, sort of a dark time to be in healthcare, to, to watch people die and, and have very little that you could offer them. So I don't want to end on that really, really heavy note. And so I'd really like to spend some time when we're together again, talking about how we do a better job and how we keep moving that um, needle forward to get a better representative and more diverse group of people participating in research. So there's a lot to talk about coming up. And, and I really want to thank the panel of folks today who are my friends from across the country. And while their backgrounds are in biocontainment, really nothing in any of their lives prepared them for the research role they played in COVID. And you guys just did a tremendous job in, in getting this done. And warp speed is uh, not an inaccurate term because you really were able to do an awful lot of work in a very short period of time. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us today to discuss Operation Warp Speed and how folks from across the country were able to rapidly implement really important research during the COVID pandemic and other special pathogens events like MPOX. 
For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to this episode. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. And specifically, we're going to talk more about research and how research can be inclusive and not intimidating. And thank you for Jade for that great phrase. If you have any questions for NeTech or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at neetech.org backslash podcast, where you can also subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Neetech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at neetech.org.